Uh, today's message comes from Psalms chapter 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your weight. Sila has, uh, Sila, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me hard to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you do the departed rise up to praise you? Uh, Sila is your safest love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you. Hope you had a wonderful week. Would you now bow your heads and please join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, now, as we have heard your word being publicly read, we ask now that you would hear the prayers that we just lifted up a moment ago, that by your spirit you would banish whatever distracting, discouraging thoughts that we may be carrying in our hearts so that our enemy would not distract us from hearing your word this afternoon. Father, we know that it is the word of God that brings transformation into our lives. Not only does it grant us forgiveness of sins, not only does it give us eternal life, but it changes us from the inside out so that we could be a tremendous force of good, a tremendous source of blessing in this world that is in desperate need due to the curse of sin. And so, Father, would you fulfill the promise that you have given to us through your Son, that when two or more are gathered in his name, there your presence would be among us. For it is in the presence of the Lord we find peace. It is in the presence of the Lord that we find hope. It is in the presence of the Lord that we find power to have hope in you, in a world that has forgotten you and abandoned you altogether. And now, Lord, would you teach us and humble us so that we could receive from your word today and that now you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, so for those of you who uh, may not have been here last week, we had our annual uh, fall revival last weekend. And based on the number of uh, words and comments that people have said to me last week, it has been a tremendous success because it was a tremendous blessing for so many of you, as you have told me, uh, throughout the week. And as a pastor here... That just does nothing but encourage me. I just love the fact that when we have an opportunity to come together for the purpose of asking for God to revive our hearts and people actually respond that the Spirit works in their hearts as the pastor here, I'm just so jubilated, I'm just so joyful, and yet at the same time, I'm 
so uncertain about myself because not only was I the pastor last week, I'm also the pastor this week, which means I'm the one who has to stand up after an amazing revival happened last week. And I'm thinking now it's my responsibility to come after that. I have to follow up this amazing spiritual revival that happened last weekend. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, how am I going to outdo Pastor Michael who came last weekend? Do I try to outdo him? Do I try to preach a better sermon? You know, and I was so agonizing over this past week and I was praying and asking for God to give me some wisdom here and I really believe he did because as I wrestled and prayed through this past week it dawned on me what I needed to do and you know what it is I've decided that today's message is to not bring you down but to help you come down from this spiritual fervor that so many of you experienced last weekend. You're thinking to yourself, what? What kind of pastor are you? Why would you want to quench the spirit? Why would you want things to come down a couple degrees spiritually? Don't you want to keep this fervor going? Don't you want to keep this alive? I do, but I'm also realistic, you know? I don't typically speak at revivals, uh, but when I do, I always make sure that the last message I preached is the message that I'm about to preach to you right now. And that is a message to help you transition out of this great spiritual fervor that so many of us experienced last week. Why? Because I know I've been around the Christian block or two a couple of years, and I know that whenever many of us go through a spiritual season of excitement and fervor like so many of us did last week, is that we can sometimes carry an underlying expectation of permanence. And what I mean by that is that typically when a lot of Christians finally recapture this sense of first love, this excitement about their spiritual faith, where they're super excited about Jesus in a long, since they've been in a long time, that sometimes we can assume that this is now going to be the way it's always going to be. Like me and Jesus, we're good, we're going to stay good, and things are going to be great, right? And we're always going to have wonderful times of worship every Sunday throughout the rest of my life, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that eventually, every time you go up, you will come down. Just like as we see in the Gospels when he took his inner three, James, Peter, and John, into the mountain to see the glory of his presence. Eventually, they had to come down from that mountain. Eventually, they had to come away from that spiritual verbal and re-engage the world. Right? And so I thought that the best way for me to do that is to talk about the very issue that I felt compelled to share with you today. An issue that I think that we need to hear, but also an issue that will help us transition back to a more sobering, more realistic mindset when it comes to our spiritual faith journey. And that is the issue of depression. Depression. I want to talk to you guys today about depression. And to do that, we're going to look at the classic text from the Bible, Psalm chapter 88. And as we do, we're going to see three things from our passage. First, I want to talk about some simple observations, some simple observations. Number two, some interpretive inferences. And finally, the connecting conclusion. Simple observations, some interpretive influences, excuse me, inferences, and finally, the connecting conclusion. Okay? So let's jump right in. First, some simple observation. Now, this text, Psalm 88, is a text on depression. This is a text in the Bible that speaks specifically about depression. And when most people hear that, their immediate reaction is they start devouring it. They start taking it apart. They start looking at all the nooks and crannies of it, trying to capture whatever hidden insights that this passage can give when it comes to depression, right? And they just really go all in, real deep, real quick, right away. But if you do that, 
you do yourself a major disservice because believe it or not, simply at the first look, simply at the surface level are some profound insights, some profound truths that you will easily look over and go past if you jump too quick and are too eager to go too deep too quickly. So let's slow down a little bit and let's take a look at this passage and make a couple of simple observations. You ready? Observation number one, Psalm 88 is in the Bible. Think about that for a moment. There is an entire chapter that specifically talks about depression in the Holy Bible. And when you look at the way it describes depression, it doesn't describe it in a very, you know, safe and stale, calm description of depression like you would find in a Psych 101 textbook. No, when it talks about depression in Psalm 88, it is raw, it is gritty, it's very real, it's unadulterated, it's unedited in all of its misery and gloom. Now, why is that so important for us to understand? It's important for us to understand because for many of us, if we're honest, when we think about our depression as it relates to God, many of us assume that God could care less about our depression. Maybe because we have earthly fathers who could care less about our depression. So we live in a culture where typically fathers could care less about their children's depression. You know, for many of us, if we're honest, when we think of God, we sometimes envision someone who's more like Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music. You remember Captain Von Trapp, right? That military father who's so emotionally distant from his kids where he doesn't really engage him at a deep, honest, emotional level. Many of us assume that God is like Captain Von Trapp. He doesn't want to see weakness in us. He doesn't want to accept the fact that sometimes we don't have our act together, that we feel like our life is falling apart. I mean, why not? Because if we're honest, that's how we feel sometimes when we go through depression, is it not? When we are going through situations where we just can't stand ourselves, when we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, surely we think that the holy God of the universe must even more so can't stand the fact that we're like this, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because of the fact that this chapter is in the Holy Bible tells us that our God is not the kind of God who takes our depression and just sweeps it under the rug, pretending it's not there. No, the fact that this is in Scripture should tell us that God openly acknowledges and he wants to see, he wants to recognize the fact that this is a real reality and a struggle for all of us. Now, with that said, however, don't misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying that just because something is in the Bible and it's explicitly described in the Bible that that is somehow tacit approval or endorsement or open acknowledgement from God as if it's something that he wants to see, okay, or that is how it should be. For example, when you read in Kings and it describes Solomon having multiple wives, multiple concubines, multiple lovers, You think, well, it's in the Bible. This must mean that God approves of such behavior or he openly acknowledges these kinds of things happening in the world. No, no, no. You can't say that all the time. But in this instance, however, you can say that. Why? Because second observation is that this chapter on depression is found in the book of Psalms. This is found in what is called the Psalter, the book made up of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Do you guys know what the Psalms are, the Psalter? You know what they are? They are essentially Israel's worship book, right? These psalms that we read in our Bibles in the Old Testament, in the original context, they were to be sung in the context like this, public gatherings of God's people coming together to worship him, and they would sing these psalms to God as they're worshiping him in the temple. Now, what does that tell us? 
It tells us that Psalm 88 is not some private journal entry that was to be kept in secret and hidden away in secret. No, Psalm 88, along with the other psalms, were meant to be sung publicly in a community like this as they're worshiping God. Now, why is that so important to understand? It is important to understand for two reasons. First reason, it goes against what your depression says about you. What do I mean by that? A couple years ago, there was a popular movie called Titanic. Some of you probably never heard of it, right? It started Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. And in this movie, Kate Winslet's character, her name was Rose. She's describing in one scene in the movie her struggle with depression. And she says this to Leo DiCaprio's character. She says, quote, I feel like I'm standing in the middle of a crowded room, screaming at the top of my lungs, and no one even looks up. That statement right there captures perfectly what we interpret our depression to say about us, which is what? You are utterly alone. You are so uniquely broken. You are so exclusively dysfunctional that no one can understand you. You are just a weird anomaly with your issues, and therefore you should just crawl in the corner and just disappear because no one is going to sympathize. No one is going to empathize. You are just that weird. You are just that off in your brokenness, right? That's how we feel when we go through seasons of depression that no one can understand. We feel like we have this unique stain that just shames us in a way that no one else is shamed. And we just feel so frustrated and broken because we feel so alone. But no, the fact that this psalm was to be sung in a setting, in a corporate context, as a display of an entire community's relationship to God should tell us that, no, when you get depressed, that is not something that should isolate you because you think you are just so uniquely broken, so uniquely dysfunctional. Hear me when I say this, that everybody, everybody, excuse me, everybody struggles with depression. You can be white, you can be black, you can be Asian, you can be Hispanic, you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be educated, uneducated. Everybody struggles with depression. Depression is not some unique struggle that's only limited to a certain personality profile or to a certain socioeconomic background or to a certain ethnic group. Everybody struggles with depression. And when I say everybody, I also include godly people. God-fearing people. And this is the second reason why we need to understand that Psalm 88 was a public hymn to be sung in community. The author of this psalm is a man by the name of Haman. It's spelled like He-Man, but it's actually pronounced Haman. Who is Haman? Haman, according to 1 Chronicles 6, is the lead temple musician during the reign of King David. In other words, he's a worship leader. And here's the thing you need to understand in ancient Israel times. Some of the most godliest, some of the most righteous, some of the most super spiritual people in all of Israel were temple musicians, right? And even though this psalm was to be sung in the context of an entire community representing an entire nation struggle with depression, when you read it, you can't help but to notice there are some personal, individual sentiments embedded in it, which tells us what? It tells us that Heman, a godly, righteous person either had a long history of depression or he's currently struggling with depression as he's writing these words. Now, do you realize what that means? It means this, folks. Just because you are a God-fearing person, just because you are devoted to Jesus, just because you are sold out for Christ and you are centering your entire life with him and for him to his glory, does not mean that you will be immunized from the pain of depression. 
In fact, many people have noticed that some of the most godliest people that walk on this earth also happen to be the people who walk the darkest life of all. Charles Spurgeon, a great London preacher, put it this way. Listen to what he says. Quote, Some of the best of God's people frequently walk in darkness. Some of them are wrapped in a sevenfold gloom at times, and to them neither sun nor moon nor stars appear. As the pastor of a large church, I have to observe a great variety of experiences, and I note that some of whom I greatly love and esteem, who are, in my judgment, among the very choicest of God's people, nevertheless travel most of the way to heaven by night. They do not rejoice in the light of God's God's countenance, though they trust in the shadow of his wings. They are on the way to eternal light, yet they walk in darkness. They are heirs of a measureless estate of bliss, and yet they are now without the small change and spending money of comfort, which would make their present existence delightful. What is he saying? He's simply saying this. Just because you are living right doesn't mean you're always going to feel right. One more time. Just because you're living right doesn't mean you're always going to be feeling right. So there it is. Some simple observations just by looking initially at Psalm 88. But now, let's take a look a little deeper beneath the surface. Let's look at some of the things that Haman references and infers in the text that helps us understand why we get depressed. And to explain, let me go to my next point, some interpretive inferences. Now, The more you study and the more you read Psalm 88, one of the things that you're going to start noticing is that embedded throughout this chapter are various inferences that Haman alludes to, Haman, excuse me, Haman alludes to, as to what causes and why we get depressed so much. So let's look at the first inference he makes in verses 1 and verse 16 and 17. Let's combine those three verses together. Let me read it to you now. He says this, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to with these three verses is that they all convey this idea of restlessness, this sense of not being able to rest, not being able to cease and desist, to take a break, right? Notice in verse 16 and 17, he describes depression as what? A massive flood coming down on you where wave upon wave is crashing down on you, sinking you beneath the surface to where you could hardly catch your breath, right? That's how he's describing the depression. And here we see one of the first reasons why you and I get depressed all the time, which is we're always going. We're not stopping. We're always on. We're never resting. We're never rejuvenating. We're just go, 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 work, 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 study, 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 more, 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 right? Labor, labor, labor. One of the things that happens when you're always on and you never give yourself the opportunity to take Sabbath to where you can just rest, to where you can recuperate, to where you can heal, is that you will start sinking more and more to a darker, darker depression. For those of you who are first-time mothers, you know that what I'm saying is absolutely true, right? When you're raising that little child, it is tiring and it can lead you to depression. You know, before you had this kid, you could do what you want to do. Go where you want to go, right? Sleep however long you want to sleep. Shower whenever you wanted to shower. But once you have a kid, you can't do what you want to do. You can't go where you want to go, right? Sometimes you can't even shower when you need to shower. Sometimes you can't eat what you want to eat because you know it could affect how your child responds to your breast milk, right? Do you know what it's like when you're always on, when you never rest, 
Well, you never have an opportunity just to sit down and just recuperate from all the tireless work that you do. You know what it's like? It's like hell. Hell. You know that place where God's judgment and wrath is on you? Did you notice in verse 1? The way Haman describes this depression coming on him is like God's wrath upon him? Yeah. Hey, listen, even if you're doing something that you love to do, like raising a child or doing your work in the city or going to school, studying the things that you're studying and you love that stuff, if you don't take a break, you will descend into an abyss of sorrow and gloom to where you will never be able to come out of it until you give yourself that permission just to stop and to cease and to Sabbath. That's the first reason that Haman references as to why we get depressed. But let's look at another reference he makes in verse 8, another reason why we get depressed. Listen to what he says there in verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Now, this is perhaps one of the biggest reasons why so many in our city get depressed. And you know what it is? Relationships. Specifically, relationships that have been severed, relationships that have been broken, relationships that have been strained due to circumstances. You know, it goes without saying that we live in a world, we live in a city that is relationally incompetent. We have spouses cheating on spouses. We have parents abusing their kids. We have siblings taking other siblings to court. We have students attacking students. We have teachers attacking students, students attacking teachers, coworkers throwing other coworkers under the bus. We live in a fearfully incompetent world when it comes to relationships, Right? People simply just don't know how to relate to people in a way that's edifying, but no very way how to discourage, how to destroy, and how to diminish a person's dignity. I remember when I was a pastor out in Seattle for a number of years, there was a woman in my congregation back then, early 50s, who for 20 years was truly depressed, clinically depressed, on pills, seeing counselors, right? And one time she came into my office and she was just moping and groaning about her depression. And I found out that the reason why she was been depressed for over 20 years is because she had a falling out with her mom. The reason? She married her husband, whom her mom did not approve of. As soon as this daughter decided to marry this man, her mom was like, we're done. How dare you marry this man who I don't approve of? You're no daughter of mine. How could you marry someone and bring this kind of person into our family? And so off relationships for 20 years, 20 years, depressed. You know what made that story even more sad? The mom passed away four years ago at the time of this telling of this story. And it just seemed like this woman was going to be forever stuck in this pathetic state of being perpetually depressed for the rest of her life because that's how important our relationships are. Your relationships are so crucial to you as a human being to where when they are disrupted due to strain or brokenness, Or, even if the relationship is great, but you are separated for long periods of time, that will cause gloom. It will cause sorrow. It will cause your mind to descend into places where it shouldn't go, and you will be so full of anger and bitterness, right? Because that is how important relationships are. And if you are uncareful or not careful with the way that you handle them, it will lead you to a path of utter gloom and darkness, But what about the third inference he makes? Let's move on real quick. There's a third inference, another reason why Haman says we get so depressed. And he tells us in verses 4 to 5. Let's read it one more time. I am counting among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Now, 
you can interpret these verses one of two ways, and it all depends on how you interpret that last word in verse 4, strength. Strength. According to Old Testament scholars, many people think that Haman intentionally uh, wanted this word to have dual meanings, right? So that we could see it in both ways. So let's take a look at it that way, shall we? First interpretation of strength is physical strength, right? Which means that according to Haman, one of the ways in which you get depressed is when your physical strength, your physical health is diminishing. Look at what he says again in verse 8. He says, I am a shut-in so that I cannot escape. That seems to reinforce the idea of when your physical body is no longer healthy and strong. Have you ever gone through a situation where you were injured severely and it seems like you weren't going to recover that quickly? Or maybe not at all? That leads you into a state of depression. Have you ever gotten sick? Right? Maybe you've had a battle something serious like cancer or someone you love had a battle something like that and you see how depressed they get. You ever see veterans after they come back from a war and they're missing a limb, an arm, and they just fall into this this really bad situation of depression? When your body is not working, even from the simple issue of aging, right? I'm at an age now where I just simply cannot, you know, run as fast as I used to. I didn't really run that fast ever, but I just can't run nearly as fast as I used to. Man, I get depressed, right? When I look at the back of my hair and I see this, this light patch getting bigger and bigger, I get depressed. The physical strength is leaving me as it's leaving all of you. That's one reason to why you get depressed. But there's another way in which strength leaves you, and that's the other way in which you can interpret strength, and that is psychological strength. When you go through something so traumatic, so, so painful emotionally, psychologically, that it leaves scars on you, right? To where even though you're physically healthy, even though you're physically safe, you just feel this inner curling in within you. Whether it's growing up from a parent who was very verbally abusive, whether it was being bullied as a kid, right? Whether it's fighting in a war, whether it's witnessing someone die right in front of you. These kinds of experiences that happen to you psychologically can leave you so traumatized to where you can descend into a darkness to where you never want to go out and engage anyone. You just want to hide away within yourself. So that's the third reason that Haman references as to why you and I can easily fall into depression. But then there's the final inference, the fourth reason that he speaks of. And this is where I want to linger on for just a moment. Starting in verse 10 down to verse 14, we read this. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, you can kind of pick up on it in the English, but if you read this in the original Hebrew, you see it so boldly, so clearly. This is a man who is freaking out with fear. He is panicking. He is overwhelmed with such horror to where he's spitting out in a span of four verses, six questions. Six questions within four verses. That's a lot. It sounds like he's also saying it in one breath because that's how panicked he is. But here's the thing. If you look at these six questions, you realize they're not really six different questions. They're really one question spoken in six different ways. And that is the question, why? Why is this happening to me, God? 
Why are, am I feeling this way, God? Why am I depressed, God? Why am I going through this hardship? Why am I going through this dark night of the soul? Why, why, why? And notice, in this psalm, God never answers. God never responds. If you ever read any of the other psalms to where they begin negative like this one does, almost all of them end with hope. They end with some happy ending. They end with some recollection of God's promise or God's word himself, right? But here in Psalm 88, it doesn't end that way at all. There's no happy ending. There's no response from God. It's just silence, right? It's darkness in response. And here we see another reason why so many of us get depressed. And you know what that is? We just don't know. One of the most common reasons why people get depressed is simply there's no reason at all. There are so many people out there who are physically healthy, who have great relationships, who are spiritually on fire for God, who are well taken care of, and yet, for some reason, beyond any sort of understanding, any sort of justified explanation, they're depressed. They're lost. To where there's no reason, there's no, there's no justification for the existence of this depression, and yet there it is. I would imagine out of all the four reasons that he lists here in this passage, this is probably the worst reason of all, where you are depressed and you have no idea why you are depressed. A couple years ago in the New York Times, a doctor who works at Cornell Medical College, Richard Freeman, wrote this in his article, A New Focus on Depression. Listen to what he says, quote, of all the major illnesses, mental or physical, depression has been one of the toughest to subdue. Despite the ubiquity of antidepressant drugs, only a third of patients with major depressions will experience a full remission after the first round of treatment. And successive treatments with different drugs will give some relief to just 20 to 25% more. Although we have learned much about depression, we still don't understand its fundamental cause. What is he saying? He's saying, he's describing the fourth reason that Haman is just referring to why you and I get depressed, we just don't know. We don't know why we're depressed. We have no reason to be depressed. There is no justification for why we are depressed, and yet there it is. So those are the four reasons that Haman refers to as to why we get depressed. And now the question is, what do we do about it? Is there anything we can do about it? Well, to answer, let me go to my final point, the connecting conclusion. Three days after Jesus died on the cross, (coughs) Scripture tells us that he rose again from the dead. He resurrected. And in this resurrected state, it says that he was walking on the Emmaus Road. He was on this road to Emmaus to eventually get to Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, he runs into two of his disciples, not the original 12, but two other disciples that he had throughout his ministry. And in Luke 24, it actually records the conversation that they had. Take a listen to what it says there, starting in verse 44. Jesus starts off by saying, Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Now notice what Jesus is claiming about himself. What is he saying? He's saying that the entire Old Testament, right, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, those are the three categories that describes the entire Old Testament, all of that is about him. It's ultimately about Jesus. The entire Bible, 
The entire Old Testament is about Jesus, which tells us what with regards to Psalm 88? It tells us that Psalm 88 is not ultimately about universal depression of mankind, nor is it talking about the personal depression of one man, Haman. No, Psalm 88 is ultimately about the depression of Jesus. Psalm 88 is talking about Jesus specifically. It's talking about his sorrows, his sullenness, his depression. Do you realize what that means? It means that the one person in this world who's been the most depressed person of all, it's Jesus. It's God. This is why, by the way, in Isaiah 53, the prophet describes him as what? The man of sorrows. The man of sorrows. Listen, there is no one that came before Jesus who will ever be as depressed as he was, and there's no one that will ever come after him who will ever be as depressed as Jesus. Jesus was truly the one man who suffered the darkest of depths of sorrows that any man, woman, and child has ever experienced. In fact, all the different things that I just mentioned in my previous point that causes depression, he suffered all of those kinds of reasons. For example, Jesus suffered relentless circumstances to where he could never rest. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 says, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Jesus also suffered broken relationships. Matthew 26, verse 34, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Jesus suffered physical and psychological trauma to the point where he was overwhelmed with sorrow. Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And then, of course, finally, Jesus suffered the kind of depression to where he called out to God, Why? Why? And in response, he got nothing but silence from God. Matthew 27, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember what happened as soon as he spoke those words? Darkness descended upon the earth. It's as if God simply ignored him, did ignore him, did forsake him. Putting all this together, what does it tell us? It tells us that depression originated in the heart of God. Depression originated in the heart of God. And if you think about it, that makes total sense when you think about what sin is. What is sin? Sin is not simply violating God's law. Sin is not simply, you know, going against what God has told us to do. Sin, according to Scripture, is first and foremost disheartening God. Sin is living in rebellion to where you are trying to dishearten God. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and what? He was grieved in his heart. Sin grieves God's heart, and sin is the fundamental cause of all causes of depression. Think about it. Sin is responsible for our restlessness. Sin is responsible for broken relationships. Sin is responsible for physical and psychological trauma. Sin has no justification for its existence. There's no explanation as to why it should exist. It has no reason to exist, and yet there it is. 
Sin is the source and origin of all depression, including yours, including mine. But with that said, it does beg the question, but what does all of this have to do with my struggle with depression, Pastor John? What does that have to do with my issue with depression? It means this. Your depression, friend, is, in this life, one of the strongest indicators that you are connected to God. Let me say that one one more time. Your depression is the strongest indicator that you are connected to God, even if you're not a Christian. If you're here investigating Christianity, know this. If you're struggling with depression, that means you too, in some way, somehow, are connected to God. The fact that you experience the very same phenomena that God experiences as he engages this world tells us that somehow, some way, you have a bond with God, you have a connection to God, even if you don't even think he exists. But here's the thing. Just because you have a bond with someone doesn't mean that you have a relationship with them, right? Doesn't mean that there's love, right? You can have a biological connection to somebody and not have a relationship with them. Am I right? There are so many tragic cases where due to sin, people who are biologically connected to someone do not have a loving connection to them. And yet we know because of that biological connection, if things worked out the way it should, there should be love, right? A child should have love relationship with his biological father and mother. But sometimes the world isn't the way it should be. And sometimes people who are connected to people biologically are not connected to each other relationally. You are made in the image of God. That image means that you are always connected to your creator. But just because you're made in the image of God doesn't mean that you have the connection that you were created to have. The way things it was. The way things it should have been. So, with all that in mind, what does all this mean? It means your depression is trying to teach you something, depending on whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian. So, if you are a non-Christian, the question is, what is your depression trying to teach you? You know what it's trying to teach you? It's trying to teach you that you are to be reconciled to the one you're connected with in your depression, but disconnected because of your sins. One more time. Your depression, if you are a non-Christian... It's trying to tell you that you need to be reconciled to that person that you are connected with through your depression but disconnected with because of your sins. And scripture tells us exactly how you do that. You have faith in the gospel. You believe the good news to where God loved you so much that he came into this world as Jesus, where he suffered all of your sins. He took all the penalty, all the punishment of all your sins, past, present, and future, to where if you repent of it, And if you look to him as Lord and Savior, if you center your life, if you make him the Lord of your life, you fulfill the purpose in which your depression is designed to lead you to. That's what it's trying to teach you, friend. If you're not a Christian and you struggle with depression, that is what depression is trying to get you to. But what about if you are a Christian? What if you already have faith in Jesus and you struggle with depression? What is your depression trying to teach you? It's simple. Your depression is trying to teach you, not that you have to reconnect to God because you're already connected to him through faith, right? But rather, it's trying to deepen your connection to God through your depression. You know, when people suffer together tremendously and they survive that suffering together, doesn't it always make them really close? When you have two soldiers fighting side by side and they survive, don't those two soldiers typically become brothers? the blood brothers, right? When you have two orphan siblings staying together and surviving and trying to cope, 
living in a world without parents and they grow up, doesn't that bond that they have like cement? It's unbreakable. When a family goes through poverty together or war-torn living together and they come out at the end of it, doesn't that family have a bond because they shared in the sufferings that they had together? Well, that's what God is calling you to do, Christian. As you go through depression in this life, that is God's way of saying, share in the sufferings that I endured in my depressive life when I came to be your Savior. That is what God calls us to do as followers of him. That as we walk in this broken world, we come to understand what it was like to walk in our master's shoes. So as we do, we come to understand the extent and gravity of how much he loved us, to how much he was willing to endure, how much he was willing to sacrifice, how much he was willing to fight for you to be with him. Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India back in the late 1800s, really understood this, and, he capt- and she captured this understanding with these words. Listen to what she says, quote, At last the day came when the burden grew too heavy for me, and then it was though the tamarind trees around the house were not tamarind anymore, but olive. And under one of those trees our Lord Jesus knelt, and he knelt alone, and I knew that this was his burden, not mine. It was he who was asking me to share it with him, not I who was asking him to share it with me, end quote. What is she saying? She's saying, I understand now that when I go through depression, it's not ultimately about me. It's ultimately about Christ and the depression that he endured as my Savior To where when I come to understand it, I come to understand what it was for him to go to Calvary's hill and to get on that cross. And thereby, what does it do? Your depression does not sever your communion with God. It deepens your communion with God. Friends, brothers and sisters, know this. In spite of all the spiritual uh, motivations and, and spiritual high that you got last weekend... Know this, you're going to come down. You're eventually going to come down and go further down in a state of depression. You will get depressed. I will get depressed. But when that happens, do not misinterpret that to think that now all of a sudden that your faith is null and void or that your faith is disingenuous. Maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to share in his sufferings so that as you do, you become more like him And by becoming more like Jesus, you become what he was to this world. You become a source of blessing in this world. You become a servant of this world. You become a source of good in this world. And so my charge to you, NCF, this afternoon is, are you going to hold on to that when that day comes? Will you remember your Jesus when it seems like he has not remembered you at all? Knowing that that is not true. He has remembered you. And he went to the cross all by himself. I pray that you will always hold on to that. For when that dark night of the soul comes, you will find your Jesus waiting for you, being with you to help you endure, to help you become stronger, to become better for this world, so that you can show this world the hope, which is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more about what it's like living in a broken world like this, living in a broken city, to where all we can do in response is just to be solid and sorrowful and for good reason. Lord, help us to never think that that is an indication of either your abandonment of us 
or therefore the disingenuousness of our faith in you. But instead, let it lead us into a deeper understanding of Calvary's cross and let it deepen our affection for you as we become more aware of how much you truly, truly loved us. And God, we need that reminder. We need to be assured of that transforming, forgiving, eternal love to which you have suffered so much to give to us. Father, there are many of us in this room who are in a dark night of the soul season. Many of us in here feel so lost, so alone, so broken. And Father, I pray that instead of trying to run away from that situation or to overcome that season of sorrow, Father, I pray that they would already see you, you who are already waiting for them in that moment, in that place, in this season, so that they can see that they do not need positive circumstances, things going their way, in order to be connected to you but that by your grace and mercy, you will always be with us regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of the sorrows we feel heavy with. Would you help us to live that out so that our faith can truly endure in good seasons and bad and therefore continue the work that you've given us to do, which is to be a light of the world, salt that seasons this world with good flavor, showing the goodness of our great God. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.